and welcome to our event, Unstuck, Getting Conversations About Jesus Moving. My name is Dave, I'm the Assistant Minister here at St Mark's. It's our great pleasure to have you all here this evening. We at St Mark's have been looking forward to this night for quite a long time now, and we owe a great great debt of gratitude to City Bible Forum um, for them making it so easy for us to host this event, so to Mark and to Sam. We want to thank you all for making this event happen so easily. If you're anything like me, you'll find that it's just so easy for our conversations with our friends about Jesus to get stuck. If it's sort of wanting to try to avoid a convers- uh, an awkward conversation, or if it's just not knowing what to say when the opportunity comes up, or how to start talking about Jesus, tonight is all about us getting unstuck. It's all about us thinking about how we might have conversations about Jesus with our friends and how they might flow. Before we continue and move on tonight, just a couple of pieces of housekeeping. You'll be glad to know that there are toilets on the site, but they're they're not upstairs, they're downstairs. So if you need to go to the toilet, just make your way um, out the back, down the side into the bottom hall, and you'll see the toilet on the and secondly, uh, there'll be an opportunity for Q&A after Sam's talk. You'll see that as soon as Sam starts talking, there'll be a number on the screen that you can text message a question in if you prefer to text message your question in. You can do that anytime during his talk. And then, like I said, after his talk, we'll have time for Q&A. So to help us think about getting these conversations flowing, we have a very skilled technician amongst us. Uh, Sam Chan is a practicing doctor, and I believe he also has a doctor of theology. He's a public evangelist, and he's recently written a book called Evangelism in a Skeptical World that is about the topic we're thinking about tonight, but in much more depth. And I believe it's won some pretty significant awards, so well done, Sam. Can we please welcome Sam to the... Sam, before you get going, sure. uh, kick off tonight, yep. can you tell us a bit about yourself? Uh, family interests, what you've been doing for life. Yeah, sure. So I was born in Hong Kong, but my parents moved to Australia when I was just a baby. We spent two years in Darwin, six years in Adelaide. And then from the age of eight onwards, we moved to Sydney and I've grown up in Sydney. We started off in Campbelltown, then we moved to Lumiere, then we moved to Minnow, if you know that's one station at a time on the Western Suburbs line. <laughs> Then I went to high school at Trinity Grammar School, studied medicine at Sydney University, worked as a doctor at Westmead, Blacktown, Mount Druitt Hospitals. One thing led to another. I found myself in Bible college just for one year, and that morphed into three years, and that morphed into a PhD overseas, and then I found myself in full-time professional Christian ministry, and I was teaching at a Bible college for about 10 years. One thing led to another, now with City Bible Forum. I've also got three young boys, Toby Cooper and Jonty, that are age, uh, age 11, 9 and 7. Toby, we named after top 10 dog names because my name, Sam, has always been a top 10 dog name for the last 50 years. So we went through dog names. Number one dog name in Australia is Jack, but we thought we couldn't call him Jackie Chan. That would be too... <laughs> be rough for him. 
A Cooper we named after beer names because beer names are just cool. Guinness, Kilkenny, Cooper. So Cooper was the name. And then Jonty, we went through jock names, like, like sporting jock names. We went through the professional surfers, but they're all the names of kids that get into trouble at school, you know, so that, okay, we can't do that. So we went cricket, Jonty Rhodes from South Africa. So Toby, Cooper and Jonty. Sceptical about our ability to talk about Jesus with our friends. How do you hope our attitudes to evangelism might change as a result of tonight? Yeah, sure. So, um, I caught up with a friend uh, a while ago and he looked in great shape all of a sudden. I said, Dave, what's going on? He said, I've taken up triathlons. I said, triathlons? You're Vietnamese, you're Asian, you can't swim. Like, how do you do that <laughs> first leg? He said, well, he got himself a DVD and taught himself how to swim. So I said, David, you've got to give me that DVD. So I got the same DVD, I watched it, took notes, took the notes with me to a swimming pool, and I taught myself how to swim. And I thought, wow, if you just break things down into concrete, achievable steps, you can do anything. And evangelism feels the same, doesn't it? We always told you've got to tell your friends about Jesus. And we think, I would if I could. Stop telling me to do it. I would be doing it if I knew how to do it. And I think that's how evangelism feels like for us. We feel guilty for not doing it, but, when we, but we don't know how to begin. What's the first step? And that's the point of tonight. I hope we walk away feeling, you know what? That is way easier and way more doable than I thought it was. All yours, Sam. All right, fantastic. Thanks. Well, I love going to the Sydney cricket ground, and I love how on a packed day in a cricket test, there'll be that moment where they start the Mexican wave. You can hear it. Five, four, three, two, one, and poof. The crowd goes and they start doing the wave. People jump up, rubbish goes in the air, people shout, and it goes around and around and around and around and around and around and suddenly, boom, the wave hits the members stand <laughs> and the members do nothing and suddenly 50,000 people boo the members. Boo, boo, boo. One day, someone invited me to go to the members, so I sat in the members stand and sure enough, halfway through the day, the Mexican wave started. Five, four, three, two, one. Boom. And the wave starts going around and around and around. And it's coming closer and closer and closer to the member stand. And everyone in the member stand, we are sitting there frozen in fear. What do we do when it comes to us? And it comes to us and we're too afraid to do anything. And we sit there in silence and suddenly 50,000 people boo us. And I thought, oh my gosh, it's happened. I have become that guy. I am the guy they boo. I am the bad guy at the cricket ground. And that's what, like, what it feels like to be a Christian today, doesn't it? All of a sudden, boom, how did this happen? We are the bad guy. And at the same time, we are told we need to tell our friends about Jesus. So how can we navigate this? How can we tell our friends about Jesus? in what I call a post-Christian, post-reach, post-church world where we are now the bad guy. So over the next, say, 40 or 50 minutes, I'm going to share a handful of tips that have worked really well for my wife and me, and hopefully they will work really well for you guys as well. And then think of whatever question you want to ask me, and I'll do my best to answer your questions. All right, are we ready? First tip on evangelism, and it's this. 
Number one, we need to get our friends to become friends with their friends. You think, what on earth is that? Number one, get our friends to become friends with their friends. What am I talking about? Well, I want you to imagine, just imagine, I say this, my wife and I, we live in Croydon Park, and just last night, a UFO landed in our backyard, and a little green man got out and he invited us to go into his UFO. So my wife and I did, and he took us to his home planet, Jupiter, we got out, he met his, we met his family and friends, we had a meal, and afterwards we got back into the UFO, and because of the whole space-time continuum, we went through a time portal, and one second of Earth time went by. Who here believes me? <laughs> All right, it's a minority belief. Most of you do not believe me. Let's say I tell you this story instead. 2,000 years ago, God sent us his son, Jesus, the son of God, 100% God, 100% human at the same time, born of a virgin. When he was alive, he raised a dead girl back to life, gave a blind man his sight again. More than that, he died on a cross. If you believe this, God will wash away all your sin, guilt and shame. More than this, three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. More than that, he's in heaven right now. And if you believe this, his spirit will live in you right now. More than that, one day in the future depending on which denomination you belong to, he will come again. <laughs> and he will set up a physical kingdom here on earth. And in that moment, your body will rise from the grave and be reunited with your soul. Who here believes me? <laughs> Whoa, okay. In this room, most people believe the Jesus story. But now you've got to think, why are you happy to believe the Jesus story, but not the Jupiter story? Because let's face it, the Jupiter story is way more believable than the Jesus story. And as I'm saying the Jesus story, even I myself, I'm thinking, I'm not sure I can believe this. This is pretty unbelievable. So why are we happy to believe the Jesus story, but not the Jupiter story? Because of what philosophers call plausibility structures. We all have these pre-programmed, predetermined plausibility structures that prejudge what I say as believable or not believable. So as I tell you the Jupiter story, our pre-programmed, predetermined plausibility structures are prejudging the Jupiter story. So when I say last night a UFO landed in my backyard, your pre-programmed, predetermined Plausibility structures are red lighting everything. Bah, 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 bah. Red light, red light, red light. Unbelievable, unbelievable, unbelievable. And when I say we went to his home planet Jupiter, your plausibility structures are going bah, 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 bah. Red light, red light, red light. Unbelievable, unbelievable, unbelievable. And when I say we went through a time portal and one second of Earth time went by, your plausibility structure is going ba 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 red light red light red light red light unbelievable 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 but when i tell you the jesus story your pre-programmed predetermined plausibility structures are green lighting everything so when i say jesus the son of god born of a virgin 100% god 100% human at the same time 
your pausability structure is going bling, 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 green light, green light, green light, believable, 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 died on a cross, rose from the dead three days later, bling, 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 green light, green light, green light, believable, 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 one day he will come again, bling, 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 green light, green light, green light, believable, believable, believable. So now you're wondering, where do I get these pre-programmed, predetermined, plausibly structures that are red lighting or green lighting something even before you've made up your mind? We get them from, from three main sources. Number one is our community. So they're friends and family that we know, love and trust. Number two is experiences. And number three is facts, evidence, and data. And out of all of these, the most powerful one is community, and the least powerful one is facts, evidence, and data. We think it's facts, evidence, and data. We want it to be facts, evidence, and data, but like it or not, it is the least powerful one in determining what we choose to believe. Because let's say I say the UFO is still in my backyard in Croydon Park right now, but you've got to fight through an hour of Sydney's traffic to get there. Who here could be bothered coming to Croydon Park to check out the UFO? Ooh, see, a handful, two, three people at the most could be bothered checking out the facts, evidence and data for yourselves. And if you did come and if you saw the UFO and touched it and felt it, you'd be going, Nah, nah, nah. There's some other explanation. This is an elaborate hoax. We explain away the evidence. So the most powerful one in determining belief is community. Community, what our friends and family that we know, love and trust, what they believe, this would determine what we, how we interpret experiences, facts, evidence, and data. So as I tell you the Jupiter story, most of us here do not belong in a community that believe in UFOs. Most of us have not had a personal experience of UFOs. Most of us do not believe there are any facts, evidence, and data to support that story. But when I tell you the Jesus story, most of us here belong in a community of other people also believe in Jesus. We've had a personal experience of Jesus and we believe that enough facts, evidence, and data to, do, um, to support the Jesus story. And out of all of these, it's community. Because we all choose to believe what f our friends that we know, love, and trust also believe. So, in this room, a Bible-believing, God-fearing, church-attending Christians, who here believes women have a right to vote? Oh, wow, okay, it's a majority belief, majority belief. And a uh, hundred years ago, none of us would have believed that in that same room. Who here believes a motorcyclist should wear a helmet? It should be mandatory by law. All right, majority belief, majority belief. Who here believes the government should pay for my health and education? All right, or the young people. <laughs> okay. All right, but it's a majority belief. Let's say I was in Texas, USA, right? And in a room full of Bible-believing, God-fearing, uh, church-attending Christians, and I said, who he believes the government should pay for health and education? Most people say, no, it's my money. I've worked for it. Why should it go to someone else who's less hard-working than me? 
If I said, who here believes motorcyclists should wear helmets? Most of them say, no, it's their head. They can do what they want with their head and they have an accident. At least they're paying for the bills and not me. And, and so it's community that determines belief. So as you heard, I named our kids Toby, Cooper and Jonty. But when we were expecting our second child, it took us a while to work out what to name him. And every parent plays his game. You don't want to name your kid a name so common, like John, Peter or Andrew, that is boring. But at the same time, you don't want to wear a name so weird and funky, like Matthew with three T's and a silent Q. So everyone is trying to hit that Goldilocks sweet spot. Not too common, not too weird, but just right. Hip funky, edgy, so everyone thinks, oh, look how cool are the parents, hey, with that name. And so we thought, you know what? Cooper. We're going to call him Cooper. Not so common, not so weird, just right. And that year, Cooper was a top 10 name in New South Wales. We all, we're all sheep. We think like those around us. We believe what people around us believe, and we do what people around us do. Let's say as I tell you the Jupiter story, I'm the only one in the room who believes it. I'm unbelievable, aren't I? It might be true, but it's unbelievable. But let's say, as I tell you the Jupiter story, this half of the room goes, oh my goodness, a UFO landed in our backyard last night as well. We too went to Jupiter, thought that was you I saw, just didn't want to wave, just in case. Now how's this half of the room feeling? You're suddenly thinking this is way more believable because half the people that you know, love and trust also believe in the story. Let's say I tell you the Jupiter story and the whole room believes it and you're the one and only schmuck who does not believe it. Now it's way more believable than it was before. That's why Paul says, I saw Jesus risen from the dead in 1 Corinthians 15, oh, but not just me, the other apostles. Oh yeah, not just them, but 500 other people that you know, love and trust and you can talk to them right now now it's way more believable. So we're not talking about the truth status of the gospel claim. We're talking about the believability status of the claim. And so what makes something believable is how many people in your community also believe it. So why am I saying this? Because typically as Christians, when we evangelize, we do it solo. We get fired up. We think, you know what? It's about time I told my friends about Jesus. So we might get fired up and we're trying to work out the courage when to tell them or we might sign up for a cooking club, a book reading club, a football team and we're going to tell them about Jesus. And what we're doing is brave, noble. What we're telling them is true. But if we're the one schmuck in a group of 25 who believes it, then no matter how true it is, it stays unbelievable. So what we need to do as Christians is merge our universes and get our Christian friends to become friends with our non-Christian friends. So we're not the one and only Christian friend that believes in the Jesus story. And so typically as Christians, we have two universes of friends. We have a universe of Christian friends and a universe of non-Christian friends. When our Christian friends go to a barbecue, we go with them. When our non-Christian friends go to a barbecue, we go with them. When our Christian friends go to the movies, we go with them. When our non-Christian friends go to the movies, we go with them. What we need to do is merge our universes. So when our Christian friends have a barbecue, invite our non-Christian friends. When our non-Christian friends go to the movies, invite our Christian friends. And bit by bit, 
merge our universes of friends. And so when I was a junior doctor, I lived in an apartment with three doctors. All three were non-Christians, but because we lived in the same apartment, when my Christian friends came to visit, they got to know my non-Christian doctor friends. When my Christian friends went off to a movie, I invited my non-Christian doctor friends along. When my non-Christian friends went off to a concert, I invited my church Christian friends along. And bit by bit, we merged our universes. And after two years, all three of my non-Christian apartment doctor friends became Christians because I wasn't the only one who believed in the Jesus story. So it was always true, but now it became way more believable. But what this means is this. It takes two years to form a new network of trusted friends. So we're talking about a lifestyle change, not a one-off event that we call evangelism. In this sense, evangelism is like health. Because every year we make the same New Year's resolutions. Every New Year we say, this year, this year I'm going to eat less, drink less and exercise more. We get fired up, we get up at five in the morning, we run, we sign up for a gym and it lasts one month because it's unsustainable, because it was an extra event that we added into our busy lifestyle when what we needed for health and fitness was a lifestyle change. And evangelism is the same. We need a lifestyle change where we merge our universes of friends and so we need to be proactive about introducing our non-christian friends to our christian friends so when i was single i'd often get invited to dinner parties and suddenly i realized oh it's happened again i'm being set up because <laughs> there's a couple there's a couple, there's another couple, and there's a girl all by herself that they've invited, and he's me all by myself that they've invited, and they've sat us together at the table. Ah! Oh. But we can do the same with our non-Christian friends. Match them up with our Christian friends. So my wife and I always think, okay, that non-Christian couple would really get on with this Christian couple, and then we just have a barbecue where it's just them, just them and us. And I find the ratio of one to two works really, really well. Now you're the majority in their community. <laughs> My wife and I, I, we're also at a stage of life where we have so many non-Christian friends. So you've just got to understand the rhythms and the stages of life. And it's this, when, when you're in primary school, you have friends. When you're in high school, you have more friends. When you're at university, oh, you have so many friends. So when you have a 21st or you have a wedding, now you have hundreds of people being invited. And then you get married and poof, you have no friends. Because <laughs> no one wants to go out with you and you don't want to go out with them either. Like you've become boring. You don't want to go out. I love it. Like, like my wife would say, hey, let's go to this thing. I say, I'm not going. Will I be the only guy there? Will it just be a women's thing? Like, I'm not going off if I'm the only guy there. And think, wow, I have changed. Because when you're single, <laughs> if you found out there's only going to be women there and you're going to be the only guy there, you are going. But now, I'm not going if I'm the only guy. Like, will it just be a women's thing? But then you have kids and then your kids' friends' parents become friends with them. Your universe of non-Christian friends exp 
explodes again. So we have so many non-Christian friends. But then I said to my wife, hang on, have you noticed all these people have only moved into Sydney in the last two to five years, meaning they haven't formed a trusted network of friends yet. It takes two years. And studies are showing right now, they quote Dunbar's number, Dunbar is a UK sociologist, that we all need a tribe of 150 people. We need to belong in a tribe of 150 people. Then we need a trusted network of friends of 30 people, no, 15, 15. And then we need an inner circle of five friends. But what they found is in Australia, 60 to 80% of people now don't even have that trusted network of five friends. Loneliness is a new epidemic, they're calling it. And so my wife and I found it's really easy to make new non-Christian friends. So that's the first tip then. Um, merge our universes of friends, get our friends to become friends with their friends. So our non-Christian friends aren't becoming Christians, not because they don't know the gospel, but because they don't have any Christian friends. So introduce them to your Christian friends. Second tip then is this. Go to, go to their things and they will come to your things. I often get invited to speak at evangelistic events and a, guy, a friend of mine called Andrew often organises these evangelistic events and every time I turn up to these evangelistic events, I notice Andrew has five or six non-Christian friends that he's invited along they're five or six new non-Christian friends, different every time, and they're happy to be there. I can see that in the body language. Afterwards, they come up, they thank me for my talk. So I went to Andrew's wife, Jackie. I said, Jackie, what is going on? Every time I come to one of these events, Andrew has five or six non-Christian friends, different ones every time, and they're happy to be there. What is going on? And Jackie says, it's because we're always going to their things. So they're happy to come to our things. And this will be one of many things we would be doing together anyway. And so we're not investing everything into this one night anyway. So think about it. Normally, when your church does evangelism, they might organise an event, a one-off event, like a men's breakfast, and then they tell you men, you got to now, you got to invite your non-Christian friends to this men's breakfast. You know, think, oh, okay, so now you're at work, think, okay, I just got to get the courage and I'm going to invite them to a men's breakfast. And your friends at work are thinking the same thing, here he comes, here he comes. Uh, you know what he's going to do? He's going to invite us to one of these breakfast things. And you're thinking, you know, when do men do breakfast together anyway? And now it's a church thing, and now it's an evangelistic thing. I think, how do I make this work? Well, if we're always going to their things, and this will be one of many things you would be doing together anyway, it becomes surprisingly easy to invite people to your things. So I, was on, uh, I live on a street, it's a cul-de-sac, we all get to know each other, and one night, uh, a whole bunch of them were going off to the local Catholic church for Christmas Eve Mass, the midnight mass. So I said, can I come along? And they said, sure, come along. So I went with them to their mass. 
Afterwards, on the way back, they asked me, well, what do you do for Christmas? I said, funny you should ask. I'm the guy who gives the Christmas talk at my church. Would you like to come? And they said, yes. So for the next three years in a row, they came to my Christmas service uh, as well as their own one. If you go to their things, they will come to your things. So my wife and I, we've made this, this a deliberate priority in our life now. Whatever our non-Christian friends invite us to, we will go. And even if they don't invite us, we will go. <laughs> and so it, it could be a fundraiser, a trivia night, a school concert night, uh, a, a, a sports game, uh, whatever. We will go. And often when we turn up, they'll say, you came. Or they weren't expecting you really to come. And we go, yes. So if we go to their things, they will come to your things. Oh, yeah, so just as an added tip then, so I've got my kids now playing Saturday sports. They play AFL with a local club. And at first I thought, oh, this is going to be wonderful. You just drop them off. I can go read the paper, have a coffee. But no, Saturday sports has changed. They suck you in. Before you know you're on a barbecue roster, you're on a water running roster, goal umpire roster. They think, what is going on? They want all of me. And then a guy at work said, no, 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 you don't get it. If you go to their things, they will come to you. They notice you're there on the sideline. They notice you're on the barbecue roster. They notice you're on the goal umpire roster. And bit by bit, you build enough social capital. And he said, you become their de facto chaplain on the sideline. They will come to you. And so it's like a rip, don't fight it, just let it take you, embrace you. And so what I've done is I've signed my wife up for all the rosters. <laughs> and we still get social capital. <laughs> Tip number three is coffee, dinner, gospel. Because we're still thinking, well, how do I tell my friends about Jesus? I need to actually tell them about Jesus. Well, I say, well, break it down into steps. Coffee, dinner, gospel. It's like when you see the pile of dirty dishes in your sink, you think, oh my gosh, I don't know where to start. This is too big. It's too global. It's unimaginable. It's unachievable. And my wife would say, it's all right. Break it down into baby concrete, achievable steps. Here, begin with a fork. <laughs> and now have a cup. Now break it down into baby steps. And before you know it, it's achievable. And evangelism is the same. It's too big. It's too global. How do I tell my friends about Jesus? This is too big a leap. Well, break it down into baby, concrete, simple, achievable steps. What are they? It's coffee, dinner, gospel. Don't think about how to invite my friends, how, how do I tell my friends about Jesus? Think, how can I just invite them out for a coffee? Because coffee is a safe invitation. It's public, it's 10 or 20 minutes, and you're just going to make safe, small talk. Like, whoa, how blue was the sky today? Yeah, the sky was very blue. <laughs> you know, what did you do on the weekend? What books are you reading? How about them bulldogs? Yeah, how about them bulldogs? And after you've done coffee once or twice, now you can invest in inviting them to a meal, lunch or dinner. 
And this is a bigger invitation because it's private space now and you're investing one to two hours of your time and the conversations will start moving from public to private, from small talk to deeper talk. And bit by bit, gospel opportunities will arise. Because this is how conversations work. So chaplains teach me that there are three layers to a conversation, just like there are th- layers to an onion. And the layers are this. Um, interests, values, and worldview. So conversations begin in the outer layer, in interests. And that's where you describe things. Whoa, how blue was the sky? Yeah, how blue was the sky? What did you do on the weekend? What movies did you watch? How about them bulldogs? Because these are safe conversations because you won't disagree. You're just describing publicly verifiable truth claims. How blue was the sky? Yep, the sky is blue. Uh, so you say, how blue is the sky? Someone's not going to say, no, it's not. No, you're not going to get in a fight over the colour of the sky. What did you do on the weekend? We had a picnic. You're not going to go, no, you didn't. No, you won't disagree. This is safe conversation. Uh, what movies have you been watching? I watched this movie. No, you didn't. Yes, they did. It's safe conversation. But bit by bit, conversations will move from interest to values. This is where you make value claims. Simple value claims could be chocolate is better than vanilla. James Bond is better than romantic comedies. Rugby union is better than rugby league. These are value claims, and this is where you will get into fights. Like, chocolate is better than vanilla. No, it's not, you know. James Bond is better than romantic comedies. No, it's not. Rugby union is better than rugby league. No, it's not. And these are harder to verify. How do you prove chocolate is better than vanilla? That's why we avoid these conversations. They lead to fights. But bit by bit, they... Conversations will move from values to worldview claims. What is real? Is there a God? Do you pray? Is there life after death? And so my chaplain friends say, what happens is this. Conversations around coffee are usually in the interest area. But when you move to private space, your friends, if they feel safe enough and they trust enough, they will try to invite you into values and then they will try to invite you into worldview conversations and the trick is to be like a chaplain listening for the invitation and my chaplain friends say they will drop you a hint that they're trying to move it and if you miss the hint they come back out here and say well how blue was the sky on the weekend yeah how blue was the sky on the weekend and they give you another hint later in the conversation they want to bring you into values and if you miss it They go, oh, yeah, how blue was the sky? Yeah, how blue was the sky? And they'll drop a hint a third time. And if you miss it, then they they stay out here for the rest of the conversation because they think, okay, he's not listening, he's not interested, so we'll just keep talking about the colour of the sky on the weekend. And so I went to a dinner party once. My friend dropped in the conversation. My mother died this year and I missed it. So later he said, you know, my mother died early this year. And I missed it. And later he said, my mother died early this year and I missed it. 
So on the way home, my wife in the car said, do you think he wanted to talk about his mother dying this year? All I had to do was say, oh, tell me more. That's all I had to say. Or tell me, how does that make you feel? So when they give you permission, all you have to do is just ask them a question to show you're listening. You're not judging them. You're not arguing. You're not debating. Just something like, tell me more. How is that going? How do you feel about that? And bit by bit, these conversations will move deeper and deeper and you will have your chance to have gospel conversations. Or we can invite ourselves down the layers of conversation. And all we have to do is just ask why questions or what are you looking for questions or why is that important to you questions. So someone says, to, if you ask them, what did you do on the weekend? And they say, I played basketball. That's a safe topic, isn't it? Because you're not going to say, no, you didn't. Or I don't like basketball. You just say, wow, tell me more. Why do you like basketball? To answer that, they've got to go values now, don't they? And if they feel safe, they will say, because I think it's important to be healthy. I'm doing it to get healthy. And you can say something like, wow, tell me more. Why is health so important for you? And they might then have to say, because you only live once, so you've got to look after your body. And that's a worldview statement they've just made. So bit by bit, invite ourselves in just with questioning, questioning, questioning. So it's the art of conversation, coffee, dinner, gospel. And I also call it, it's the art of moving people from the front yard to the backyard, from public space into private space. So in my street, around five in the afternoon on a summer, men, the men in the street have this funny habit. They start watering the front lawn by hand. We could use a sprinkler, but no, it gets me out of the house in arsenic hour at five o'clock in the afternoon, so I don't have to worry about the food or the kids. So we're all out the front. We're all out front, watering, watering, watering. And I didn't do this. I wish I'd done it. But one of the guys said, hey, and he came out with a six pack of beer. And before we knew it, we're all drinking beer and watering our front lawn. And then suddenly our wives come out about half an hour later. What's going on? Oh, what is going on? And so they brought out wine. Now all the wives are drinking wine. And now the kids come out half an hour later like, where's dinner? <laughs> and then we say, you know what? Let's just get pizza takeaway and come back into our, come into our backyard and let's have pizza. You can see what's happened. We began with coffee, beer, which is public space, front yard. Then we went wine, and then we went pizza, and before you know it, it's 11 o'clock at night, and all your neighbours are in your dining room having values and worldview conversations. Move people from the front yard to the backyard, from public space into private space. My, as you heard, my wife and I have all these non-Christian universes going on right now. So one non-Christian universe is the after-school swimming lesson universe. Another one is our Saturday sports football universe. Another one is our church playgroup universe. And up until now, you know, the after-school swimming lesson universe has not been very fruitful because it's public space, it's loud, and everyone goes home straight after the lesson. So all you're going to do is talk about how blue the sky was on the weekend. Yeah, the sky was so blue. 
um, the Saturday football universe. Up until now, I said, again, not very productive. It's loud. You're in public space. And all you're doing is talking about sport. How about them bulldogs? Yeah, how about them bulldogs? But that's slowly changing because we're investing in that universe, trying to become the de facto chaplain on the sideline. And we even had a barbecue, got them to come to our place after the football season. But the most productive one has been the church playgroup universe. Because carers and parents come at 10 in the morning. Oh, they can finally sit down and have adult time while the kids play. And they're having coffee. And they're talking about how blue the sky was on the weekend. And then my wife says afterwards, would you like to come to my home for lunch? And they all say, yes. So they come now into private space and they do lunch in our home. And then my wife said, do you want another coffee? They say, yes. Do you want another coffee? They say, yes. I come home at four, they're still there. And then my wife says, do you want to come and do dinner? They say, yes. And bit by bit, because we've moved them from public to private space, that's been our most fruitful universe of non-Christian friends in that we've had value conversations, worldview conversations, and gospel-type conversations. In other words, what I'm trying to do is argue for the place of hospitality. We need creative ways to do hospitality. I had never noticed hospitality, but it's there. It's everywhere in the Bible. It's like roof racks. Growing up as an Asian kid in Australia, I never noticed roof racks because Asian parents do not buy roof racks. They don't need roof racks. They, they don't surf and they don't go camping. Asians don't camp. That's the whole reason why they put you in university to get a degree so you don't have to sleep on the ground during your holidays. You can pay for a hotel. But, you know, since then, I've needed roof racks and I, I suddenly noticed now that I had to buy roof racks, they are everywhere. They are everywhere. They're square ones, round ones, black ones, silver ones. They are everywhere. How did I miss this? Because I wasn't looking out for them. Hospitality is the same. It's everywhere in the Bible. It is everywhere in the Bible. We've often concentrated on the word gifts, teaching, preaching, evangelism, and we miss the hospitality bit. And it's a hospitality that gives you the social capital, the space, and the permission to do the word gifts, the preaching and the teaching and the evangelism. And so for many of us, that means, you know, I have shared accommodation. I don't, I, maybe I'm in an apartment. Maybe I live with my parents. Maybe I live in a car. How do I do this? Well, we need creative ways to do hospitality. And so with City Bible Forum, most of our uh, people are workers in the city. And I say, how do I do this as a worker in the city? Because these days, everyone just tries to get to work early, beat the traffic, they work through coffee, they work through lunch, and they try to get home early to pick up the kids. And so if you try to say, hey, who wants to do coffee? Everyone, no, 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 I'm not doing coffee. I'm trying to smash through this work. So then I say, well, how about you just say, hey, I'm going to do the coffee run. I will take the coffee order. So everyone goes, okay, okay, I'll have a flat white, I'll have a latte. So you run down, you run down, and, and then you come back with all the coffees. And then you say, hey, hey, here's your coffee. And they say, how much? You say, you know what? On me. It's my treat. Because hospitality costs time and money. That's what hospitality is. And then as you hand them their coffee, you say, how was your weekend? And they will have to talk to you because you just <laughs> bought them coffee. You do that once or twice. 
And next time when it's lunch, you say, hey, let's do lunch. No, 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 I need to smash through this. I, I'm not stopping for lunch. Well, how about I do a lunch order? So you run down, come back and say, on me, my shout. And, and, then, and then you say, well, how are the kids at school? And they will have to talk to you because you just bought them lunch. And you'll find they'll often reciprocate then and you'll have multiple coffee and dinner opportunities. Anyway, coffee, dinner, gospel. Number four, then, is the art of listening. So we're still thinking, well, how, how do I tell them about Jesus? Well, what we have to do is listen first, and then we can tell them about Jesus. So it's the art of conversation, it's the art of listening and picking up on the cues and the art of asking questions. So my counsellor friends, they, they say what they do as professional counsellors is, well, they say there are three sorts of listening, three sorts of listening in counselling. First sort of listening is where you listen, but you're not really listening. You're just waiting for your turn to talk, so that's not listening. Second sort of listening is where you're listening, but now you're waiting for your turn to tell them why they're wrong, so that's not really listening either. The third sort of listening is proper listening, and this way you let them talk, and when they stop talking, you grab a cup and you put it to your mouth and you start drinking, meaning, buddy, I'm not going to talk. You need to do all the talking. And I remember when I was seeing a professional counsellor, that's what she would do to me. So when I would stop, she would take her drink, a cup of coffee, and she would start drinking it. And I thought, oh, I so know what you're doing to me <laughs> right now. But it worked because I could not stop talking. And this little voice in my head was, would say, just shut up. You're giving her way too much information. Now she knows you're crazy, but it would work. And that's the art of conversation. Listen and get them talking as much as you can. So they feel they're safe. They feel like they're being heard. You're earning the social capital when it's your turn to talk, they will reciprocate and do the same for you. And as we're listening, we're trying to do this. We're trying to hear. We're trying to understand. And we're trying to feel. So guys, it's everything you were taught in premarital counselling, remember? So when you have a conflict with your wife, remember this is what you're meant to do. Do you remember in your classes? So when my wife says, you're not doing the dishes, all I have to do is say, oh, from what I hear you saying, I'm not doing the dishes. And I just repeat her words back at her. And then I say, oh, I understand. And I summarise her words to show I'm not just repeating her words back at her, but I'm doing some sort of high analytical synthetic thought. So I go, oh, I understand that means I'm not doing my share of the housework. And then I say, oh, and that must make you feel so blank. And you just got to guess an emotion. <laughs> but it's, it's always going to be anger. Oh, that must, <laughs> that must make you feel so angry. And just like that, tick, conflict resolved. And my wife, she caught me telling my guy friends this advice. And she said, oh, if I ever catch you doing that to me. And I said, oh, from what I hear you saying. 
So I once caught a flight, um, jumped on a plane, and uh, yeah, so I, I'll just back up. So, uh, yes, yeah, so, so the, okay. What often happens to me, so let me just share this. What often happens to me is when I meet people and we make small talk, what do you do for work? And they say, I'm an engineer. So that's safe talk because I'm not going to go, no, you're not. No, it's safe talk. It's descriptive, okay? And then they reciprocate and they say, well, what do you do for work? And I have to say, I work for City Bible Forum and I give talks about Jesus from the Bible. And now, oh my gosh, I've dragged the conversation kicking and screaming from interest to values to worldview, just like that. And now it's a game of chicken, dare, who's going to blink first, like, oh my gosh. And finally one of us go, how blue was the sky on the weekend? And we go, yeah, the sky was so blue. But what I've started learning is giving people the permission to stay here. And I just ask a simple question, do you have a faith? And someone's even taught me an even safer question. What religion did your parents raise you with? And that's really safe because it's worldview, but at the same time, it's descriptive. You know, I go, no, they didn't. So it's a very safe way of giving people with the permission to stay in this area. And no matter what they say, because they're in the image of God, I would now treat them, because I believe it to be true as well, as the most important, most interesting person I have met at that moment. So when they say, oh, I'm a Buddhist, I go, wow, tell me more. How did you become a Buddhist? Um, like, What do you do in a temple? How do you pray? How do you worship? Is your partner a Buddhist? How does that work? What does that look like? If they say, I'm an atheist, I go, wow, tell me more. Were you always an atheist? Were your parents atheists? What does that look like? And so that's what I do. So anyway, so I'm jumping on a plane before I can get the headphones on, the international symbol for do not talk to me. The guy starts talking to me thinking, oh, please don't do this because I know exactly how this conversation is going to go. And he goes, why are you flying to Adelaide? I go, oh, please don't ask that question. I said, and he goes, is it for work or play? I said, work. What do you do for work? Ah, oh, it's like ripping off a band-aid. Just do it quickly. I work for City Bible Forum. I give talks about Jesus from the Bible. <laughs> Awkward. So now I think I'll be such a hypocrite if I don't do this next thing because it's what I teach people to do. I say, do you have a faith? What religion were you raised with? And he said, well, when I was a teenager in South Africa, I checked out Christianity and that's when I found it was a front for hate crimes against gay people. And I went, wow, <laughs> tell me more. And I just let him go on and on and on and on. And he went on for about 60, 90 minutes. And at the end, there was this really long pause. So finally, you know, I couldn't do the drink to the mouth thing anymore. And I said, okay, from what I hear you saying, your objections against Christianity are, it's, uh, it's, unscientific, all religions are the same anyway, and it's homophobic. Have I heard you correctly? And then I said, I understand for you, blah, 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 and that must make you feel angry, frustrated when you meet Christians. Have I heard you correctly? And he said, yes. And then I said, would you like me to respond? And he said, yes. Now, if you ask them what they did on the weekend and you can get them talking for one minute... 
Sooner or later, if they have any emotional, cultural intelligence, they need to flip it back to you. What did you do on the weekend? And if you gave them a minute, they should give you a minute. But if you can get them going for 10 minutes, they should give you 10 minutes, all right? So because I got this guy going for 60 to 90 minutes, he gave me the next 60 minutes uninterrupted until the plane landed. And afterwards, he thanked me, he said, thank you, that was so good. Thank you for the conversation. You made that flight go so quickly. Uh, oh, not from where I was. No. <laughs> All right, so the art of listening. And maybe I'll end with this one. Number five, tell a better story. Tell a better story than what they've got going on right now. And I'm stealing this from the title of a book called Telling a Better Story by Glyn Harrison, but I'm talking about something slightly different. But I do like the idea, we need to learn to tell a better story. So if you go to a university campus in Sydney, the first thing you notice is this, there are Asians everywhere. What is going on? There are more Asians here than in Asia. <laughs> and then you will go to a Christian group on your university campus and you find out it's only Asians in here. I'm the only non-Asian. What is going on? Because somehow the gospel has found attraction in Africa, Latin America, and Asia in a way it's not in Western countries right now. What is going on? Because this is the Asian storyline. The Asian storyline is this. I didn't always believe in Jesus. And my parents were trapped in fears and superstitions of evil spirits. We had an endless drive for success and status and earning and, and wealth and security. But my parents found Jesus and we were set free from all of that. And I'm so glad my parents have found Jesus. And when I see my non-Christian Asian friends who are still trapped in fears and superstitions and an endless drive for success and status and security, I feel sorry for them. I'm so glad we found Jesus. That's the Asian Christian storyline. But the Australian Caucasian storyline goes the opposite. My parents used to believe in Jesus. They used to make me go to church. They used to make me go to Sunday school. But I stopped believing and life has been so much more free since I've stopped believing. And when I see my Australian friends who still believe in Jesus, I feel sorry for them. They have to go to church on Sunday. They have priests. They've got outdated rules on sex and morality. Whereas I get to do whatever makes me happy. I'm so glad my parents and I stopped believing in Jesus. Can you see the storyline? So somehow we have been able to tell a better story to the Asians but it has been a better story to the, the, the Caucasian Western uh, Australians. So what can we do? Well, the Bible gives us many different ways of talking about Jesus. And I think that's what we need to start exploring. Because the ways we've been taught might be true, might be biblical, but they're not the better story that's been grabbing the hearts of our Australian friends. So I'll give you examples. So I was once catching an Uber and the lady says to me, oh, okay, you need to go to this restaurant. Why are you going to the restaurant? Are you catching up with friends? And I go, oh, okay, I can see where this conversation is going to go. 
I'm in full-time, so I said, I'm in full-time professional Christian ministry. I tell talks about Jesus from the Bible and I'm actually giving a talk about Jesus in this restaurant. And she goes, wow, okay, what talk are you going to give? So I gave her my whole talk in, the, in, in Uberai and then now it's awkward. You know, like we dragged that conversation a bit too quickly into worldview and gospel. So now we're talking about how blue the sky is again. Then I said, well, what religion were you raised with? And I guarantee this is the answer you will get from 60% of Caucasian Australians. And it was this, I was raised Catholic, but I don't believe anymore and I don't go to church anymore. I think all religions are the same. It's just about being spiritual anyway. I just go once or twice a year to make my parents happy. And then I usually, when this conversation goes like this, then I will um, ask them, and what's it like when you go? And I'm not having a go at practicing Catholics. I'm having a go, you know, at what people find when they go once or twice a year with their parents. And they will usually say, oh, it's so dry. It's just a ritual. There's no meaning behind it. And then I say to them, that's because in that church, when you look at the cross, there's a dead body on it. You're running a funeral. And they go, yes, it is like a funeral. I say, you need to come to one of our churches where the cross is empty. That's because he's alive. We're running a celebration. That's what we do when we turn up. And then I like to tell them a better story. So that I go to, I say, well, can I tell you a story about Jesus from the Bible? And they go, yeah. I go. So I always tell them the story about Jesus turning water into wine because they have no category for that. Even Christians have no category or explanation for this one because in the original Greek, the reason why they ran out of wine at the wedding was the guests were drunk, not because they had undercated. In the Greek, it says the guests were drunk. Our English Bibles don't know what to do with that, so I think the NIV just says they, they had enough or something, but they were drunk. So then I asked them, why would Jesus give them more wine? You and I would not do that. You would lose your, your liquor license if you did that here in Australia. And you and I would say to our friends, hey, I think you've had enough. But instead, Jesus gives them more wine, more good wine, and too much more good wine. And I say, why would Jesus do that? And no one can answer. I've yet found an Uber driver. Anyone can give me the answer. So I say, well, what it is, is this. I say, it's because there are many reasons, but one reason is Jesus is trying to give us an image of what life with him would be like in this life and the life to come. So you think by following Jesus, you will miss out. It's the opposite. By not following Jesus, you will miss out. And then, and then usually because in the small talk, people talk about what they're looking for in life. Uh, my Uber driver said she loves beauty, she loves sunset, she loves the beach. And I said, well, where do, that, where do you think beauty comes from? If there's no God, we're just atoms and molecules. Beauty is just a social construct, an evolutionary survival construct. But really, it's just your projection. There's no such thing as beauty. But if there is a God, he's the one who programs beauty into it. Wouldn't you like to meet the God who's made this place beautiful? So by the end of the ride, she says, tell me where I can read more on this. So I'm telling a better, a better story. My neighbour, um, Hank, is an Egyptian Muslim, married to an Italian Catholic, so it's a very ecumenical street. And we, we, we've started talking about uh, religion a lot now. Like it's, and then I said to him, Hank, Hank, 
I'm about to get videoed for an interview. They give me the questions. Maybe you can help me with the questions. Because one question is this, what do you think a Muslim would find attractive about Christianity? And I say, well, you're the Muslim, you tell me. So he thinks about it, he goes, oh, okay, I, I, I think this is what I find attractive about Christianity. He said, I like the way we have the same common forefathers, Abraham and Isaac. I find that attractive. And I thought, yeah, yeah, okay, I can see how that's attractive. And he goes, well, what do you think? I go, okay, well, let me think about it. I said, oh, okay, I've got it, Hank. Try this, try this out. Um, I said, you know, you're a Muslim, but the Quran has to be read in Arabic. It's untranslatable. So until you read it in the Arabic, you actually have not read the word of God yet. So the translations, it's not meant to be translatable. But the claim of the Bible, and more than that, more than that, you haven't been to Mecca yet. So you can't be a true Muslim until you've been to Mecca. Like you always feel like there's one more thing you need to do. But I said the claim of the Bible is this, Jesus comes to us. It's like Mecca comes to us. We don't have to go to Mecca. And because he comes to us, he is translatable into every language, tribe and people group. And so I don't have to read the Bible in the original Greek or Hebrew. I can read it in the English translation. And then I said, do you know what's amazing about becoming a Christian? And he says, I don't know. I said, I tell you what, Christians themselves, they, 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 they undersell it because they will tell you it's about getting your sins forgiven. And I said, but it's, it's more than that. And they will tell you it's about eternal life. I said, but it's more than that. And then they tell you it's about heaven, but it's more than that. I said, do you know what it's really about? He goes, well, okay, it's that Jesus will put his spirit in you and you become a child of God. He is your brother and God becomes your father. More than that, the Bible says he becomes your dad because in the Bible it says the spirit lives in us and says, Abba, Father. And I said, and English-speaking Christians don't get that. Because I said, what happens is in every, every child, their first sound is duh, 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 uh, or ba, ba, ba. And so every language, tribe, and people group has arbitrarily said, okay, that means dad. <laughs> and every child's second sound is ma, ma, ma. So every tribe, language, and people group arbitrarily says, okay, that's a word for mum. And so in French, it's... Papa, 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 papa is the word for dad. I said, as a Chinese speaker, I call my dad Baba, Baba, Baba. And in the Aramaic, it's Abba. That's what the Bible is trying to say. And then Hank goes, that's what I called my dad. I go, yes. And that's what you get to call God. And I said, when I got married, I didn't know what to call my father-in-law. So I call him Mr. Tam. Well, that's too formal. So I call him Tony. Well, that's a bit too informal. So we worked out, I've got to call him dad. And even after 22 years of marriage, I'm still not used to it. I have to force myself to say dad. And I said, God actually wants you to call him dad. And it's going to feel so weird. He's going to put his spirit in you because he wants you to call him dad. And then I said to him, you know, my little son, Jonty, he's seven, and he still comes and sleeps in our bed. At two in the morning, he climbs in. And he can do that because he's my son and I'm his dad. Uh, you guys can't do that. Like, I love you all, but you can't do it because oh, you're not my child and I'm not your dad. God becomes our dad, meaning the whole world sees him as creator, king, maker, judge, but we get to have him as our dad. 
Then I said to Hank, see those Bibles there? They're children's Bibles. They've translated the Bible into dumbed-down children's English, but it's still the Word of God. And my children read it every day, and they hear God speaking to them. And I said to Hank then, well, would you like to read the Bible with me? And he said, yes. So we started reading a chapter a few weeks ago, trying to line up another date to do the second chapter. But bit by bit, we've got to learn ways of telling a better story. Because uh, the story people have right now is not working. And so we have a better story to tell. Anyway, I've gone way over time, I know. But, um, but what I'll do is um, just give two quick plugs. Uh, I work for City Bible Forum, and often people say, how do I do workplace evangelism? My answer is, well, City Bible Forum. That is our DNA. We exist to do workplace evangelism. And our founding father is a guy called Craig Josling, and he recently put a lot of his wisdom into this book called 40 Rockets. So they're 40 bite-sized pieces of how to do workplace evangelism. We've had put them in practice the last 25, 30 years. They're practical and they work. And we've only got six copies because, we, you know, books are heavy. So we brought six of these, uh, 40 Rockets by Craig Josling from City Bible Forum. Or you can order them online, I'm sure. And also my book, Evangelism in a Skeptical World. What I've shared with you tonight is like half of chapter two in a 10-chapter book on evangelism. And this one, I think, oh, Book of the Year Award from Christianity Today in the USA this year. And we've only got six copies here as well uh, because they're heavy. And, and, and I think the, 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 the sales go to support the work of City Bible Forum. Anyway, so I've gone on for 50 minutes. So let's open it to you guys for question time. Is that all right? Yeah. One question, can we turn the aircon on? I'm cooking up here. Am I the only one cooking? I'm sweating on a, on a mid-May night. Oh, awesome, right. thanks. Any questions? One up the back. What have they? Oh, yeah, and there's something organic about friendships, and that you, you sort of can't force a friendship. I think you just keep trying to find a different set of Christian friends. That is, it's like, like when my friends used to try to match me up with another single girl. Um, they, they think, okay, she would be good for him, he would be good for her. My wife often doing that as well. We think, okay, they, that non Christian, would really get on with that Christian. So I think in the natural, organic nature of friendships, uh, that, that's fine. People are not going to form natural friendships, but then we can just work out a different set of Christian friends. Does that help? I think just keep trying to try a different set. And right now, there's a, there's a non-Christian book called The Friendship Cure. It's telling non-Christians, you need to get out and make friends. Because right now they're finding it hard to make friends as well. And it's telling them, you need to do coffee with someone. Even though you don't feel like doing coffee, you need to do lunch with someone. So I think right now, organically, it, it, it's easier than we think it is to match non-Christians with Christians. Just got to find a different set of Christian friends then. Okay, sort of related to that, I've got an SMS here. It's, it's not a question, but it sort of is. I have no non-Christian friends. Mm. 
I'm an empty nester and don't have any natural connections. So I suppose the question is, where do I start? Yeah, and, and so just, just be fine with where we're at because there is a natural organic nature to friendships and their phases and stages of life. And they have found that in the first half of our lives, we're open to making friends, new friends. And in the second half of our lives, where we're, where we're shutting down now, we're trying to invest in the friends that we already have. And that could be part of why neighbours aren't interested in meeting us or making friends. So what my wife and I... So there's some practical steps we can do. My wife and I, we, we had to move around several times in the last 10 or 20 years, and we, we deliberately then, every time we moved into a new place, renting, buying, whatever, we thought, okay, we're going to invest in our neighbours, so we will preemptively, proactively meet the neighbours on either side of us, so these two neighbours, these two neighbours, and the four neighbours across the street from us, we'll visit them, we'll give them a card with our names and phone numbers in it, because everyone forgets their names straight after you met them, now you can't ever talk to each other again, because now it's just way too awkward. Uh, and then after we've met them, then we'll write down their names, try to remember their names, and then we'll give them a gift. So like uh, a box of beer, a bottle of wine, or nuts or fruit or flowers or something like that. And that costs money. You know, a box of beer is like 60 bucks times that by one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. But you're investing over the next few years and hospitality costs money and time. And even that takes time because, you know, that's a half hour conversation, half hour conversation. Like, oh my gosh, you know. And, and then, and then, so, but we would do that when we move to a new place, invest in the eight neighbours around us. And then we'll try to invite them to our place for a very early meal or barbecue and even introduce them to each other and that was a funny thing you will try to become the social glue on the street the people that people would use uh so we'll become the village hub try to make yourself the village hub on the street and then people say and we used to live in apartments where people you know try to get in a lift and close it as soon as they can before you can get on so no one wants to talk to each other uh we found then then just baking an extra set of muffins, ah, oh, you know, knocking on the door innocently, you say, ah, oh, we, we made too many muffins. Would you, would you like a, a muffin? And then we've also, like, Easter and Christmas, deliberately gone around, like, you know, uh, gone and knock, hey, it's Easter, here's a card from us, and my wife will give him an avocado instead of an egg or, or chocolate egg. Everyone wants an avocado, so that's our Easter <laughs> present. And then Christmas time, we'll go around and give everyone a bowl of wine or something again, and we'll do that every Christmas. And bit by bit, uh, I think the wars and barriers might come down. Not necessarily, but they might come down. And then the biggest way of getting social capital apparently is asking for a favour, not giving a favour. Because if you ask a favour, now you're in debt to them and no one ever wants to be placed in debt. So it's big social trust to ask a favour. So something as simple as innocently saying, I ran out of sugar and I need some sugar. Can I borrow like a little bit of sugar from you? And most people say yes. And, and then they think, wow, you made yourself vulnerable asking for sugar. So little, little, little things like that. A question from the floor. Okay. <laughs> sure. Okay, I've got another question which is very related to what we just talked about. Sure. Uh, the question is 
if we add all these meals, mm. uh, etc., into our life, um, what can we take out of our life to find the time? Or how do we find the time? Yeah, I think, again, it's the question is a lifestyle change, which again is why fitness and health does not work if it's a New Year's resolution that this year I'm going to eat less, drink less and exercise more because now you think, what do I take out of my life so I can have a 5 a.m. run? What do I take out of my life so I can go to the gym? No, we have to change our life. So our lifestyle now is a fit, healthy life where we eat well, exercise well. And so then, well, what do I take out of my life? Or how can I change my life so organically I am evangelistic? And, the, and then the activities will follow. Rather than how can I shoehorn hospitality into my life? No, no, that, that becomes who we are. So it just naturally becomes who we are. Question? Another here. Um, there's so much good to talk about with Christianity and its offerings, but unfortunately, our collective imagination has been disproportionately captured and fixated on... Uh, notions of Dante's Inferno Hell. How do you deal with this topic with non-Christians? Oh, how do we deal with hell, maybe? I don't know. It's funny, like every, every, every decade there's a different, what I call shibboleth, tribal marker. So obviously this decade it's the whole um, identity politics thing. But in, 20 years ago on university evangelism, it was, it was all the hell thing. But I don't think hell seems to come up much. I don't think I've had anyone ask me about hell but if they were to ask me, how can a loving God allow hell? Um, I guess my first question is, why do you ask? Why do you ask? Ah, oh, see, I've just, maybe you just got to read the book. I've got a whole thing on chapter 10 on it. But I'll say, okay, well, where do you get the idea God is loving? Might be a good way to start. Uh, because I know of no other major world religion where God is loving. Like in Greek mythology, the gods are not loving. They're very capricious and evil and immoral themselves. In Asian mythology, the gods are mischievous. They don't want you to do well. There's actually only one religion where God actually loves you and wants you to do well, and that's Judeo-Christianity. Well, where do we get this from? We get it from the Bible. So if you want God to be loving, you actually need the Bible to be true. And so then we can't pick and choose the bits of the Bible we like. I like this bit, but not that bit. No, we need the whole Bible to be true. And if we have a problem with a God who doesn't act the way we think a loving God should act, well, then we've just got to sometimes think, well, maybe that is how a loving God does act. And I need to understand this loving God a bit more. And it's like marriage. So you marry your wife, uh, not because she's the same as you, but you love her and trust her. And, and she's going to say things you don't agree with. She's going to do things you wouldn't do the same way. But that's what makes a loving personal relationship loving and personal so if God is loving and if God is personal and if God is knowable then he's going to do things and say things that we might not at first understand believe or agree with but that's just what it is and so I say to the people your problem with God right now makes a lot of sense when you're on the outside but when you're on the inside suddenly you're going to find maybe it's not the problem you thought it was Yeah, I, I say we've got to just place ourselves in everyone's life as their de facto chaplain. So this is one of my buzz words right now. 
because I, I have a friend called Craig who was a military chaplain. He served in Afghanistan and a lot of horrible stuff would happen in Afghanistan. So uh, Craig would have to run funerals. Craig would have to counsel the soldiers. Uh, and one day the commanding officer, who was a staunch atheist, anti-Christian, didn't see a need for a chaplain, finally tells Craig, come into my office, I need to talk to you, close the door, sit down. And then the commanding officer says to Craig, can you pray for me? And all my chaplain friends say that is exactly how it works when you're a chaplain. You have opposition, people don't want you there, they don't believe you should be there, but there'll be a moment where they need you to speak on behalf of God for them, even though they don't believe in this God. But they, they've got the pieces of the puzzle. They want someone to make sense of the puzzle for them. They need to have someone speak on behalf of God, a voice of the transcendent, someone who can make wisdom of what's going on. So I have a friend called Pierre. His wife's Caroline. Caroline has a work colleague. And they've been doing the whole coffee dinner gospel thing with them for a long time, for years and years and years. They've brought meals over. They've invited them over for meals, creative hospitality, all that sort of stuff. And finally, not finally, but one, one day, I think their friend's mother died. And then they go to Pierre, can you speak at the funeral? So at that moment, they needed someone that could perform sacred acts for them. And Pierre's not a chaplain, but he said, yeah, I'll speak at the funeral. And then they said, our grand or our son, who's only five or six years old, is asking us a question. Can you answer this question for him? And Pierre says, yes. So they do a family network conference. They ring up Pierre. So Pierre is now not just talking to the six-year-old, but all the family listening in. And the six-year-old's question is, where is grandma right now? Is she in heaven or hell? And Pierre had to partially, gently answer that question with 20 people listening on and for about 20 minutes. And I said to Pierre, can you see what happened? You became their de facto chaplain because you had placed yourself in their life where when they needed someone to speak on behalf of God, they came to you. So I live in a street where there are three or four other Christians and we all know who each other are, and we all know what we're trying to do. We're trying to merge our universes, introduce our non-Christian friends with our Christian friends. And there was a tragedy on the street. A young boy died, 14, and there was a funeral, and they went to one of these Christians, can you speak at the funeral? Can you perform the funeral? So somehow there'll be this moment where, where, where they, they need you. And the other thing I'll, I'll just add in, is you earn this right to be a de facto chaplain by taking an interest in their life. So I work one day a week as a doctor, and what you do is you make the small talk. What did you do on the weekend? How are the kids at school? How old are they? What years are they in? And you write it down, you write down the names, write down what they did on the weekend. I know it sounds really creepy, but the next time you see them, you follow up on it. How was the picnic? How was the uncle? How are your kids at school? How's the basketball for your kid? And they do small talk, they do small talk, they do small talk. But all it takes 
is because you took an interest, you remember the names of the kids, which just blows them away. I have a friend at work, she's a lawyer, and she says, my partners in my 10 years of working with them have never once asked what I did on the holidays. They only tell me what they did on the holidays. And they've never once asked me for the name of my kids. So somehow these are really powerful questions. What did you do on the holiday? What are the names of kids? Why did you choose those names? And follow up on it. And then you ask them a chaplain-type question. And this is, this is a chaplain-type question. How's Joshua doing at school? Oh, Joshua's loving school. How's he really loving school? And they go, you know what? He's not. He's struggling. Things are hard. He's getting bullied. So you know in Genesis 3, because of the fall, everything is cursed. So number one, work is cursed. Number two, childbirth and health. Our bodies are cursed. And number three, relationships are cursed. That means no one has it together. Everyone is just patching up, whitewashing their lives. You just need one follow-up question. And are they... And if you've earned their trust, they will reveal all. Work is not going well, health is not going well, and relationships are not going well. You just need to ask that one further question, earn their, rust, uh, 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 earn their trust, and they will actually tell you things aren't going well. So now at work, I say things like, um, well, Pil, I say, I said, how's so-and-so doing at school? And then finally the nurse says, you know what? We've had to take her to a speech pathologist. She's actually behind in her speaking. And then all I do is say, how do you feel about that? That's all I had to say. And then she, she trusts me, so she talks. And then I say, oh, you're just worried your kid is going to fall behind, aren't you? So I've heard, understood, now I'm showing the emotion, aren't I? And she goes, oh, that is exactly it. So, because I nailed the emotion, now she goes, wow, now she's happy to treat me as the de facto chaplain in her life. And then, and then what I then say is, my wife and I pray every night, can we pray for you tonight? And they say, yes. Uh, and so that, that's usually this, uh, that's one way of just, yeah, answering that question. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. So much was said tonight that really I think changes or reframes the way at least I think about.